1: from KQED From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Humanitarian conditions in Gaza have become increasingly desperate and devastating as Israeli forces intensified bombardments in the southern part of the region this week, leaving most of Gaza's 2.2 million people displaced and electricity, food and water in short supply. The death toll has climbed beyond 16,000. This two months after Hamas's brutal attack on Israel that killed 1,200, more than 130 hostages remain in Gaza. We take a closer look at this stage of the war and prospects for ending the death and suffering after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Gaza's humanitarian crisis is deteriorating by the hour, the World Health Organization said this week, as tens of thousands of people in southern Gaza look for safety from Israel's bombardments. Israel declared war on Hamas with the intent of destroying the organization after its brutal attack on southern Israel on October 7th, two months ago today. On this grim anniversary, we take a closer look at where things stand and where they're headed with Steve Call, staff writer at The New Yorker, also former dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. He joins us from London. Steve, welcome to Forum.
2: Uh, thanks, um, and I'm glad to be here.
1: Glad to have you. First, what can you tell us about what's been unfolding in Gaza over the last few days? How has Israel intensified its assault on southern Gaza?
2: Well, as you'll recall, the ceasefire ended last uh, Friday, and immediately uh, Israel resumed uh, full combat operations, uh, airstrikes and ground movements mostly in southern Gaza, and I'm sure your listeners who have been following this will remember that a large percentage of the population of Gaza uh, was displaced from the northern part of the Strip, where the war began, into the southern part to take refuge, and now where they are uh, is the locus of Israeli combat operations. Under pressure to comply with international humanitarian law and to spare civilians, the Israelis have been undertaking um, communications with neighborhoods in southern Gaza. I don't quite understand how the system works, but apparently they've divided the southern strip into hundreds of squares and they send messages into small areas where they uh, intend to carry out combat and urge people to leave. The difficulty whether you're in a small neighborhood that is so messaged or you're just trying to find another way to safety, is that there's really no place to go. Uh, In southern Gaza, there are uh, some areas along the Egyptian border that are out of sheltered space, meaning you have to sleep outside. There are other areas um, where apparently people were encouraged to go along the coast and They haven't been able to um, find shelter or resources there, meaning just the basics, food, water, sanitation. So um, it is quite a a grim uh, situation.
1: In addition to not having a place to go, how are people receiving the messages of the fighting, of where the fighting is and that they need to leave with little electricity and Internet access?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Um, I I know from past operations in Gaza that um, the Israeli Defense Forces have used multiple methods, including leafleting and um, and uh, yeah, messaging on um, on uh, communications channels, the radio, and other things. But exactly what it feels like to be in one of those neighborhoods that is meant to be evacuated through this method right now, I have no idea.
1: Mm. On the line now, we also have Adam Goldman, a reporter who covers national security for the New York Times. He joins us from Tel Aviv. Adam, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Uh, Thanks for having me tonight.
1: You've also been closely following the humanitarian situation in Gaza. What else can you tell us about what's happening? Uh, Steve has talked a little bit about how Israel has intensified its assault there. What can you tell us about the broader humanitarian effect?
3: Um, well, clearly, there have been a vast swath of of neighborhoods that have been destroyed as, you know, Israel and the Israeli, de- Israel Defense Forces try to root out uh, Hamas. Um, and, you know, they've moved into Khan Yunus. And as one of your speakers previously said, you know, you've got this mass migration to southern Gaza. Which you know it was densely populated before, you know and now it's, it's twice as populated. So um, it's 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 an untenable it's an untenable situation, uh, and certainly um, they're going to be more casualties because Israel is determined to destroy the people who slaughtered twelve hundred people in Israel on October seventh.
1: Yes, the Gaza Health Ministry says that the death toll has already reached sixteen thousand two hundred. 48, with estimates of 70% of so women and children. Adam, as you say, today marks two months since Hamas's brutal and deadly attack on Israel. 138 hostages remain. I'm curious if there was a sense of this today, the atmosphere there?
3: Um In, in Israel today, on the first day of Hanukkah?
1: <laughs> yeah, about the fact that this is, in fact, two months since that brutal attack, if you were hearing what you were hearing from people on the ground.
3: It's it's very raw and people are still angry and they see Hamas, not the Gazan people, even though they're suffering as an abomination. And they believe that they still believe and they believe firmly. And I've talked to all sorts of people, even peaceniks, who have spent their whole life fighting for a two state solution, are now questioning you know, everything they believed in. Right. And they still question everything they believe in because how could a group of people come into Israel and rape butcher and kill women and children? You know, I, I saw pictures of babies with shot in the head, right. Uh, Babies burned in in nurseries. I mean, it's, and I've seen a lot of, a lot of terrible stuff in my time. I've covered ISIS and this was right up there with it. Mm. So um, uh, they are still angry and they feel uh, they feel that Hamas has to be destroyed, at least militarily, militarily, and removed from power. Um, but it does seem, I, I guess, we'll know more. I mean, they, I think they are under in, under pressure from um, the United States to uh, to you know to limit the number of casualties in these, these sort of tactical strikes in, in Gaza. But you know, I want you know, I think everybody should be cautious about the numbers. Um uh we uh you know, it's 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 war. There's a fog of war, you know, and we we just everybody just needs to be somewhat somewhat, you know, somewhat cautious about the numbers that are being throwing around, possibly by both sides.
1: Are you talking about the Gaza Health Ministry's figures? I know it's impossible to verify, as you say, we are in the fog of war. But my understanding is that human rights monitors have said that the figures are are credible in terms of the Gaza death toll. And I think even a senior Biden administration well, official said that uh, it yeah, may be I think an undercount.
3: Dispute, um, I, I don't know about an undercount, but I think the dispute with Israel is how many of those are actual Hamas fighters.
1: What are the estimates around Hamas fighters who have been killed?
3: And you know, Israel has put them. Israel has said about fifty-three hundred Hamas fighters have been killed. That's roughly, you know, we've heard twenty. That that represents, you know, twenty percent of Hamas's fighting force. But again, we need to be skeptical of those numbers.
1: Yes, and in terms of the attack as well on Israel, the numbers have gone from fourteen hundred to twelve hundred. Do you have any? background on why that was down, uh, reduced down slightly?
3: It's not, it's not clear to me. Um, uh, I think some people have, uh, they've, some people have been recovered. Um, You have to remember, I mean, Bodies have been charred and backs of cars, like literally melded together. So it's not clear to me how they came to that, that 1400, uh, that 1400 estimate. Also, while Israel says there are 138 hostages, you know, in they believe to be in Gaza, we don't know how many of them are actually still alive. Mm. At least I don't.
1: Yes. I don't think anyone does. and and,
3: And I'll make another point here. You know, this is a small country and people... You know everybody knows each other it feels like and the the trauma uh, the country is consumed with this hostage issue right and and you really you really feel it it's you know there are hostage posters everywhere on the trees on the walls people are wearing um they look like dog tags but they're really you know bringing the hostages home so this is something that is that is you know that is that has scarred this this country
1: Steve, you've described the hostage crisis as embedded in this war, and I want to go a little deeper. You've talked about how you feel history sliding backward in describing the hostages and that situation in this war. Can you talk about what you mean by that?
2: Well, the the attack on October 7th and the hostage taking at such a scale and with such indiscrimination and brutality attached to it, it just sort of felt like the spectacular terrorism of the 1970s, uh, late 1960s, 1970s, and uh, at that time, um, you know, the the left wing um, elements of the Palestinian uh, liberation movement that had taken up these tactics discovered the media power of hostage taking. And it's a way to control the narrative of a crisis and to um, publicize political demands. Um, You know, hostage takers in this world have lots of different motives. Usually they want money, but um, when it's a political uh, act, then what you are looking for is visibility, credibility. Um, And so that's what I meant by sliding backwards. Um, The hostage crisis remains embedded in the war, both politically and militarily. for the reasons partly that Adam just described, which is that the families and now released hostages have become the vanguard of a very powerful political movement in Israel, one that the uh, unity government and the war cabinet can't afford to ignore. Uh, They really are pressing their case that the Israeli government should prioritize the safe return of every single hostage. Um, There's a lot about what went on in Qatar, in the negotiations, the mediated negotiations that led to the release of um, significant dozens and dozens of women and children um, last week that we don't know. Um, They fell up, the negotiations reportedly fell apart in part because Hamas was unable to account for some of the hostages. but. The bigger picture is that that 130 plus however many are still alive uh, consists of uh, largely men including some very elderly men who are the husbands of the elderly women who were released uh, last week but also a lot of military aged men uh, who were seized at this uh, music festival and uh, in other circumstances and um so that is going to be, it always looked like it was going to be a harder negotiation. And I'm just not clear what the Israeli government's strategy is to try to um, advance negotiations for the release of those hostages while uh, also trying to break the chain of command uh, that Hamas has left in Gaza, because somebody's going to have to make the decisions to release these hostages if that's a priority.
1: We're talking about the conditions in Gaza, which have become increasingly desperate. Two months after the beginning of the Israel-Hamas and war, Israel declared war on Hamas with the intent of destroying the organization after its brutal attack on Israel, and we're taking a closer look at where things stand. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza as fighting between Israel and Hamas intensifies this week, two months into the conflict. We're talking with Steve Call, staff writer for The New Yorker, who's also the former dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University, and his books include Ghost Wars, the Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden from the Soviet Invasion to September 10, 2001, which won a Pulitzer Prize. Steve joins us from London. Joining us from Tel Aviv is Adam Goldman, a reporter covering national security for the New York Times. He's also author with Ronan Bergman of Israel Knew Hamas's Attack Plan More Than a Year Ago. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have for our guests about their reporting on the war? What questions do you have? have about this stage of the conflict. How have you been affected by this war these past two months? You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. Our social channels are at KQBD forum. Adam, I do want to ask you about that reporting of that piece uh, of how Israeli military officials knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. Can you tell us a little bit about how how that played out, what you learned through your reporting?
3: Well, you know, we learned um, since uh, Operation Protective Edge, which was Israel's uh, incursion in the Gaza in 14, where they were trying to eliminate tunnels that Hamas was using to uh, as vehicles to commit terrorism attacks. in in Israel, Uh, they they eventually obtained um, this evolving plan that Hamas had done to, uh, you know, had put together to to launch a massive attack on Israel, Um, you know, usually possibly anywhere up to 2000 of these uh, commandos. And, um, and then in about, I guess, about mid 20, mid 2022, they got their hands on what appears to be the most updated version of this attack plan. And it was codenamed Jericho wall. And it was literally uh, it was, you know, the the wall of Jerusalem is literally Hamas's plan to break through the wall, you know, the fortifications surrounding um, Gaza. And, you know, think of it sort of like a D day plan, right? storming the beaches of Normandy Mm -hmm. but uh uh they you know how they would in fact accomplish that it didn't it's my understanding that the the the, like the 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 other details about taking hostages and you know once they once they broke through the wall that was that was separate and a lot of the soldiers themselves a lot of it sorry a lot of the fighters or you know members of Hamas weren't even made aware of the targets until that morning but um uh, w- w- there was a lot of debate within the israeli intelligence community about the the, the jericho wall and in particular um you know months ago uh when uh, an analyst for um Shmona Matayim 8200 which is their, their signals intelligence it's like the nsa you know there was a woman there who uh was a veteran of hamas and she had studied hamas you know everything about hamas think of sort of like maya in uh, zero dark 30 and um and in her hunt for bin laden and she believed that they were preparing they they had completed the plan and they were preparing at least uh, uh they were going to carry out some small ver- some version of it perhaps as a, using as many as 200 uh commandos she had witnessed um she had learned about an exercise and there was doubt um among I you know I guess her superiors and they saw this document, this, the Jericho wall is a a compass, uh, I think that that word was used by um, a commander in the southern Gaza division. Uh, it, this was essentially a compass of where they wanted to go, and they hadn't arrived there yet. Now, I don't want people to think that the Israelis hadn't taken this report seriously because they had. To say they dismissed it would be inaccurate. They 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 took they in fact took it very seriously, and you can imagine how much time and effort the Israelis had put into. Right, actually acquiring this battle plan. So there was a debate essentially about whether whether Hamas was capable of doing this, and in the end, you know they they underestimated Hamas's capabilities at the time. I mean, it, it was a failure of imagination by the Israeli Defense Forces, probably um, you know underlined by you know a good a good deal of confirmation bias and. Uh, and you know there are a lot of parallels, in fact, to, to 9/11 that Steve can can talk about. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a failure of intelligence collection; they had to the collection. It was a failure to analyze it properly.
1: Hmm. Yeah, Steve, I want to get your take on the on what Adam just described. I mean, you've written and reported deeply on military intelligence issues in the context of 9/11 and the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Do you have insights at all into why Israeli officials might have disregarded this as a result of that? But mainly, I'd also just love to hear how you characterize the impact of this not being believed as credible.
2: Well, I mean, the impact of it is that, uh, you know, an Israeli society that in the run up to October 7th was polarized around a major constitutional crisis and where reservists in the Israeli system who are, you know, an essential element of um, the Israeli defense forces were declining to serve. There were all kinds of strands of distraction in Israel in the months beforehand. So whether that played any role in reconsidering this intelligence or in what, how um, observed? There's been other reporting, and I don't know if Adam thinks it's credible, but other reporting about observed exercises that were, you know, probably understood to be just, you know, part of this general aspiration, but which were also interpreted as detached from any real capability. Um, so, I I don't know exactly what happened inside the Israeli system. I do know uh, about comparable intelligence failures in not just the United States, but elsewhere. And one of the things that happens is that you um, extrapolate the past into the future. And if a group shows that they have a limited capability and they and you come across a plan where they're suddenly saying we're going to shoot the moon. It's very easy to say, well, yeah, that's nice. Uh, they're they in their clubhouse and they're thinking big, but they they still don't have the capability to do that. Um, Failures of imagination are maybe a subset of that kind of human problem, um, because uh, I don't know who could have imagined 9-11 in the sense that uh, a small group of volunteers used only box cutters to turn passenger aircraft into cruise missiles and smash them into buildings. I mean, that would have taken quite an imagination. Of course, the authors of the attacks uh did find that imagination. They talked about it. if That model was in the system. But again, nobody took it seriously because it just seems so extravagant. Um, I, I do know uh, the last thing I'd say about these kinds of events, in, especially in open societies like Israel's, um, is that they will be digested. This one will be digested in Israel for many, many years to come. There will be commissions and and reviews, and there will be accountability, and already there's political accountability. One factor in the war is the weakness of the prime minister politically, and one factor in his weakness is the anger that many Israelis feel about the failure to prevent the attacks.
1: Adam, in speaking to officials, did you get the sense that they do feel, had the documents been taken seriously, that they had the capability to avert the attack?
3: Yes, the documents are very sensitive. So in my normal course of reporting and speaking with, uh, IDF, Israel Defense Forces officers, you know, they don't reference the Jericho wall by, by name because it's classified. So what I have heard from, uh, Israeli officers, high ranking from general to colonel, unprompted is an apology. I want to apologize to, you know, we, 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 I want to apologize to, uh, you know, to, to the Israeli people and to the country. We failed, right? We failed. So whether they failed to take the documents seriously enough, and the, the end, the end result is still the same that they failed and they, they recognized that. That's not something you hear often. uh in in american circles certainly you didn't hear i i, don't, I uh, you had you didn't hear anybody uh you didn't hear the head of the fbi apologizing after january 6th did you that they had failed right to stop this domestic terrorism attack right and they suffered from some confirmation bias themselves or they thought these people would never do what exactly what they did so, um, you know, there is a there is a profound sense of failure in this country. And, you know, the head of Shin Bet, which is essentially the equivalent of the FBI here. You know, he has taken responsibility. Um, and, uh, you know, this they have, you know, I think, um I think there is going to be accountability, like Steve said. Look, they're still digesting the the Yom Kippur War. I think there was a story about the Yom Kippur War intelligence and in, uh, Yedioh Rachonot in one of the Israeli newspapers the day before the attack. So here we, you know, here we are, 50s later, 50 years later, mm. and the Israelis themselves are still debating uh, certain aspects of the Yom Kippur and the intelligence failures that led to that. So, you know, Steve's 100% right. This is an open society, and um, they are going to account for what happened. And you're probably going to see a lot of people uh, leave the army and, and the government itself.
1: Wow. Well, Martina on Discord writes: I don't find daily news updates helpful in any crisis situation that does not immediately impact me because it's too anxiety, anger, and fear-producing. It's just too sad and outrageous to handle the barrage every day. Instead, I read essays, experience art, and read history to better understand the situation in context. I want to find the complexity and understand things better intellectually, without visceral reaction, and find nuanced empathy. Empathy. My questions are: When will this end? What will Happen to the Palestinians. Adam, you reported yesterday that the Israeli military released a photo of 11 senior Hamas military leaders gathered in a tunnel beneath Gaza and said that five of them had been killed. We know that they had talked about how they had killed Hamas leaders. But can you just talk about, especially in the context of what you described with Netanyahu and the military, what you think the purpose of releasing the photo was?
3: Um, I, I, you know, I think, I think there's an information war going on between Hamas and the IDF, and I think they wanted to release the photo. I'm, I, you know, I wasn't told this uneducated guess would be, you know, would be uh, that they are producing evidence of the campaign successes, despite, you know, despite the collateral damage in Gaza, um, you know, we're, we're winning this thing mm-hmm. and, uh, that would probably be, uh, That would probably be uh, would have been one of the uh, um, intense. Now, they clearly they stumbled on this picture. It's not I don't know when, but, you know, these at least three of the the guys in the picture had already been killed uh, in November uh, earlier in November. So there was a time there was a time lag. There was a time lag between when Israel thought they killed them and when they they found this when they found this picture. You know, one thing, I will say this, you know, we we have focused, we, we we spent a lot of time talking about the south of Israel and Gaza. But let's not forget, there's essentially a war of attrition going on in the north, right? And Hezbollah is launching daily attacks on um, on Israel in the north. And there are, I, I, I think, what's the number, maybe Steve can correct me, I think there's 200, 250,000 people displaced in the north. I'm here in Tel Aviv and they're all filed into these they're all living in these hotels with their dogs um their kids uh you know I walked by tonight they were having hanukkah services in in the in the you know in the hotels themselves and you know the people in the north are afraid to go home um, and just yesterday there were 10 rockets launched on, on Tel Aviv you know the iron dome went into effect it literally shook the hotel I was in and uh, in fact I think one of you know the damage from From one of the missiles you know almost hit you know could could have crushed these two guys on the street in tel aviv so you know there's an ongoing war going on here and it's just not in gaza and it's just not in the gaza envelope it's in tel aviv it's in central israel and more it's being more acutely felt too in in uh in northern israel
1: Well, Adam, I know you need to leave us. Adam Goldman is a reporter covering national security for the New York Times, author with Ronan Bergman of the article Israel knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago, who has joined us and given us the picture from Tel Aviv. Thank you, Adam.
3: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Mark writes, the fact is Hamas committed a brutal atrocity in Israel and killed a number of people, but Israel has killed over 10 times the number of civilians killed in Israel when Hamas members are removed from the total. This is the problem. This is why there is increasing anti-Israel sentiment. You know, Steve, I want to talk with you about essentially, you know, the goals of this war. So you hear this attempt uh, that Adam describes to try to say that Israel is winning, that the... War is getting rid of key high-level leaders. I think he was also talking about how they surrounded the home of Sindhuar to try to show some level of progress. But I wonder if you can tell me how you think, you know, here in the U.S., this is this message is being heard. How you feel like, if you think, Mark's comment is correct, that sentiment has shifted and things are not at all in the stage of accomplishment that Israel would like to suggest?
2: Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, to go back to the point you made about the Israeli information campaign around the killing of commanders um, and, uh, you know, zeroing in on the leader of Hamas in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar. you mentioned. Um, I'm only... Uh, making an educated guess based on watching a lot of conflicts over the years. I don't have any inside information, but my hopeful guesstimate is that this may signal the beginning of the end of Israel's major combat operations in Gaza. There's been reporting in the Wall Street Journal that when Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Israel last week, late last week, he told the Israeli War Cabinet that the Biden administration's patience for this kind of all out, all arms assault in Gaza could be measured in weeks, not months. Um, if Israel is going to wind down major combat operations uh, anytime soon, they also need to prepare their own public. So I kind of interpret this sudden uh, sequence of claims of victory, of commanders decapitated, and so forth, as perhaps setting the stage for a Uh, something that the Israeli war cabinet can't avoid because of Biden administration pressure, which is that they need to change the temple of the war. There's a term of art in um, these wars that some of your listeners may remember it from the Iraq war. Um, It's kind of an ugly phrase, but the end of major combat operations are sometimes declared. That's not the end of all violence, but it is the end of the kind of tank movements and infantry attacks and Intensive airstrikes that we've been seeing in Gaza to be succeeded by more selective special operations raids and targeted attacks and that sort of thing. Responses to Hamas attacks rather than this all-out uh, war that we're in now. Um, I, I don't. I don't see how Israel can sustain the level of combat that they are currently carrying out in um, the United in U.S. political opinion. for for longer than another week or two. And so um, yet they are a sovereign state and they have defied American pressure before. So they may have their own judgment about how long they need to keep fighting.
1: Well, Bernie writes, I will never trust any information coming from the government of Israel or their proxy in the U.S. So just speaking to that information attempt and what effect it is having Two months ago, Israel declared war on Hamas with the intent of destroying the organization after its brutal attack on Israel. And we're taking a closer look at where things stand and where that's headed. We're talking with Steve Call, a staff writer at The New Yorker, former dean of the Graduate School of Journalism. And we are talking with you, our listeners. You're sharing your questions about this stage of the conflict, your reflections on how you've been affected by this war these past two months. And we'd also love to hear what your thoughts or hopes are for how this ends 866 the number email address forum at kqed.org find us at kqed forum on our social channels more after the break
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza as fighting between Israel and Hamas intensifies this week, where the conflict stands. If there's any path toward peace with Steve Call, staff writer of The New Yorker, and with you, our listeners, This listener writes, journalists covering the conflict in Gaza have not been given full access to Gaza. In addition, Israel has killed over 50 journalists in Gaza. How is the public to believe anything that Israel claims when it does not allow independent journalists to verify or corroborate what is being reported? And Steve, I I don't know if you, you know, as the former dean of the School of Journalism at Columbia University, I am just wondering what you think about what has happened with regard to the, the deaths of journalists attempting to cover what's happening in Gaza, the frustration that journalists here in the U.S. feel over those deaths, over the coverage of the war by some newsrooms. What have you observed in terms of how that has been playing out?
2: Well, the deaths of journalists on the ground in Gaza and also in Lebanon has been an outrageous uh, shock to the profession of journalism. I think it has galvanized a lot of uh, opinion. It's given journalists in their field a way to engage with the humanitarian disaster in Gaza because while, um, you know, a lot of journalistic professional tradition discourages journalists from expressing opinions about the stories they're covering. Uh, There has been a sort of um, exemption uh, over the years for defending the rights of journalists to do their jobs. And so there has been, um, you know, an expression of strong support for those reporters who are left in Gaza. they are almost all uh, Palestinians living in Gaza who have been attached to international news organizations for various periods of time, some for very long periods of time, and who have been bravely, and uh, in some cases, even, you know, astonishingly, heroically doing their jobs, even while their own families have suffered deaths. Uh, Their own homes have been affected by bombardment. Um, And it's been, as I'm sure uh, we will eventually hear from the surviving journalists, as difficult a tour of reporting as they have ever encountered. And that's even accounting for the fact that they're in Gaza, where there's periodic violence and many wars. This has been something on a completely different scale. Um, I don't know the latest numbers in Gaza. I know that... uh, you know there are in the dozens of journalists who have been reported killed. there are also you know more than a hundred plus uh u n humanitarian workers who have died uh, trying to deliver services during the war and then finally, um if uh, your listeners haven't heard about it, there was a significant investigation that the news agency Reuters published about Israeli military action in southern Lebanon uh, which has you know, is another front of conflict mm-hmm. between Israel and its neighbors that has been, you know, there has been action across that border, although it is nowhere near as intense as it is in Gaza. And um, I don't I haven't read the the Reuters investigation or the accompanying Human Rights Watch report in great detail. But my understanding is that um, a Reuters journalist was uh, struck and killed by um, Israeli Uh, defense fire and that um, Reuters looking at the evidence believes that it was obvious that they were working journalists and they were probably targeted as journalists, uh, which would be a war crime. Human Rights Watch said more or less the same thing today. Um, So, you know, these are reminders that, um, first of all, our colleagues who are actually on the ground in these places are the ones bearing the brunt of uh, the effort to get something like reliable information to the global public uh, so that we don't have to rely upon government um, information campaigns or those of Hamas for that matter.
1: Yes. You touched on this before the break, um, but I'd love for you to say more about the Biden administration's position on this war, which you have described as evolving, because it is facing tremendous pressure to be stronger with israel with regard to forcing it to be more more careful about its attacks to be more surgical has been the word to be more precise we are seeing statistics though of course numbers are hard but statistics that suggest that More than twice as many children have died in Gaza since the war started than all the conflicts worldwide in 2022, if you are to believe figures from the UN. We're hearing stories of, you know, as the displacement of civilians is widespread across Gaza, they are being told to go to places that have zero capacity to take them in. There is not any kind of shelter, you know, water and so on for them there as well which is also a violation of law, correct?
2: Yes, I mean I'm not an international lawyer but it certainly can be. Um and it certainly looks like uh, the circumstances where um inadequate protection for civilians um you know as I understand international law as, a law as a non-lawyer the facts on the ground here would certainly um you know suggest that that's what's going on. Um the um, to, to answer your question about the Biden administration, I mean, I think it might be helpful just to kind of step back first and offer some context about President Biden and Israel. Um, yeah, I wrote about this soon after October 7th, during the Obama administration, when he was vice president, the kind of national security cabinet of President Obama was sort of split on Israel. There were real skeptics about the relationship, uh, in, the cabinet, including uh, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, who who called it um, a one way street, that that and he urged President Obama to be very skeptical and distanced in his dealings with Israel, particularly under the leadership of, of Prime Minister Netanyahu. But within that circle of um, decision makers, President Biden argued very strongly that the U.S. should not distance itself but embrace Israel get closer to Israel in order to have influence. Uh, He also has often for many years as a senator described himself as a Zionist and um, and as a real believer in the Israeli project of state building. And so when October 7th happened, his instincts kicked in and he flew right over there. And of course, he literally bear hugged. Uh, Netanyahu and other um, Israeli leaders. And I remember reading in, you know, the liberal Israeli press when that happened, uh, even they understood what was happening. I mean, they said, you know, the thing about a bear hug is that it's ambiguous. (laughs) Can you be, are you being coerced or are you being loved? And Biden's intention was clearly both. Uh, But as the war um, took a course that I doubt he and his uh, cabinet fully predicted the massive attacks, the instant uh, rise in, a, in civilian deaths and the flattening of apartment blocks. And yes, Israel claimed they were attacking Hamas targets, but the the knock-on effect on c- civilian deaths was there to be seen right away. Uh, almost within a week or two, the Biden administration started trying to uh, Act on the theory that they had leverage to influence Israel's conduct of the war. They were initially very cautious, a lot of public statements of support because of the atrocities, because of the shocking uh, facts about what the attackers had done to ordinary civilians um, on October 7th that shaped the initial public response. But as the weeks have passed and as the toll has risen in the ways that you've described, the Biden administration has recognized partly because of dissent within the Democratic Party about Biden's policy and his statements, uh, that they need to uh, do what they can to influence Israel, both to protect civilians in the conduct of the war um, and to contribute to the release of the hostages, which include American citizens, and to shorten the war as best they can. And uh, that has been their priority. Now, at a certain point, and I'll stop here in a second. But at a certain point, the Biden administration has to decide, are they really going to call time on this? Are they going to threaten to withhold aid? Are they going to threaten to go public and criticize Israel's conduct of the war or demand that these uh, hostilities cease? And it was interesting last week that President Biden's presidential campaign posted a statement in the president's name that sounded like a call for the end of the war. It was one of those Washington phenomena where somebody floats something and then immediately says, oh, well, we didn't mean that we were changing our policy, but it wasn't a random statement. I mean, it was a curated statement with the president's name on it. And to me, it seems as if the administration is starting a clock running uh, and that sometime in the next week or two, um, they're going to have to uh, attempt if Israel isn't already there to um, bring this level of combat to an end.
1: Yes, I pulled that comment because I was so struck by it as well. The statement is to continue down the path of terror, violence, killing, and war is to give Hamas what they seek. We can't do that. And then, of course, as you said immediately after, um, an administration official told a reporter that did not herald a change in policy. But as you say, they don't just float these statements. Uh, Let me go to caller Ali in Menlo Park. Ali, you're on. Um,
2: thank you. Um, sorry, I'm just going to read what I wrote because I'm just so... I can't even think straight with what's happening. Um, I believe Western media, many of us believe, is not fair in its coverage of the conflict. I think it's trying. I think KQD is trying very hard and doing well, and I appreciate that. But um, there's, a, there's a journalist named Motaz Azaza on Instagram, and some people may think, oh, Instagram... That doesn't know anything, but he's actually covering, he's one of the few living journalists in Gaza actually there. And um, I think we we have to try to get our information beyond conventional, traditional Western media. Mm-hmm. And of course, so cruel that journalists and their families and civilians have been targeted. That's all I want to say, and thank you for taking my comments.
1: Ali, appreciate the call. Don't know if you have a comment as well, Steve, to what Ali just said.
2: Well, I mean, I, you know, we live in a world where um, there are so many sources of information that it's very difficult to um, for anyone to um, find a menu of uh, sources that they find reliable. My own experience, just as a reporter who's been in a lot of um, noisy conflicts over the years, is <laughs> that what I want, um, as someone who's trying to follow them, is independent, uh, witnessed, eyewitness accounts from the front lines that... Um, I know are not part of a propaganda campaign, but are somebody's best efforts to just document what happened. And what's interesting about it, if you say it that way, if you say, I really want just like credible uh, views of what's actually happening. Um, of course, the ground level of a war is not all that there is about a war, but it's important to understand it, uh, the human dimension on the ground. And What's interesting about it today is that that role used to be played exclusively by correspondents for the BBC or Reuters or AP or other newspapers in America, and they would be instructed to go out and just collect the facts and file them at the end of the day for the benefit of the reading public. And that still goes on. And as we mentioned, it's uh, it's mostly being conducted in Gaza by Gazan journalists who are working for international news organizations. But today, uh, social media, the iPhone, the camera on other kinds of phones allow citizens to document uh, what's happening to them. And I've read fascinating stories about uh, sort of YouTube bloggers and Snapchat bloggers in Gaza who are just putting it out there, what they're going through. it's a challenge sometimes to verify this kind of material, but other times it's quite clear that this is a credible individual telling you what it's like for one family on the ground. And so to your listener, I would just say, you know, you should, of course, curate your own uh, media, but I hope that we still think that uh, credible, independent witnessing of events is the place to start in the midst of this kind of noise and fog.
1: We're talking with the New Yorker, Steve Call, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I do want to ask you about that last part of that uh, statement posted by the president uh, when he said, give Hamas what they seek, to continue down this path that Israel's on is to give Hamas what they seek. And, And I do want to ask you about what you think of one of the goals of this for Israel, which was that they wanted to be made safer from future attacks like this. Right. And what is meant by this question of whether or not this is actually making them what and how they're executing this war is making them less safe.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a big question. Um, I think there are, there are sort of short-term and long-term ways to think about that. Um, in the short term, Israel has a border problem they have uh then that they're responsible for in large measure because Netanyahu uh, helped to embed Hamas in Gaza somewhat cynically, I think uh, but in any event, Hamas rules Gaza uncontestedly. Hamas carried out this unacceptable attack from the perspective of Israel and the world, and so Hamas broke the status quo, and Israel's response is we've got to change the status quo. We can't just put them back in power. We can't just leave them with their tunnels and rockets and their war plans. Okay, so that's the short term. As you point out, the response has been, um, you know, extremely heavy-handed and uh, urgent. And the question is, what are the long-term effects? Does this ultimately help to legitimize Hamas in its own claims to be the true standard bearers of Palestinian Palestinian resistance. Does this help to radicalize another generation of Palestinians who um, wouldn't necessarily have gone to follow the Hamas banner in another circumstance? You know, I, I have been through this, um, you know, as Adam mentioned, I, I wrote about 9-11, and it's, I was in Afghanistan before 9-11, wrote a book about the run-up to 9-11, then I wrote a book about Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And I had a student uh, write to me recently, and she uh, sent me something from my book about how bin Laden recalled watching the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, and he wrote at great length about how that was what set him on his path. He was a business student at the time, and he was watching the war on television. And she wrote to me, and she said, you know, I, I, I fear that something like this is happening again right now in all kinds of ways that we can't see. And um, I, I think she's right. We just don't know, and it'll be a generation before we discover the knock-on consequences of this war.
1: And what will be the impact on Palestinians with a more popular, maybe a more powerful Hamas?
2: Well, I mean, there is going to be a um, once this war is over, there is going to be a complicated international project to try to rearrange the governance of Gaza. And inevitably, that will affect uh, the West Bank as well. Um that would be the subject of another hour's discussion. But the short version is um, the short version is that Hamas can't be completely eradicated uh, any more than the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which was crushed by the army that now governs that country, has been completely eradicated. But the extent to which it is marginalized, at least for a time, will depend a lot on what the Biden administration uh, does and what kind of partner it finds that it has in Israel after the war or. So,
1: Well, Steve Call, I really appreciate you coming on today to share your reporting, also your analysis, and to help us understand where things stand today, uh, two months into this war. I don't know if you want to leave us with any final thoughts. We have just 30 seconds.
2: No, Mina, thanks for having me. I think you're asking the right questions, and I hope that um, next time we talk, uh, it will be in a more peaceful environment.
1: I do, too. Steve Call's books include Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden, from the Soviet invasion to September 10, 2001, which won a Pulitzer Prize. He joined us from London today. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. My thanks to our listeners for their questions, their comments, their feelings, and their honesty about how they are processing what has been going on. My gratitude to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.